Hello, hello, our lovely deviants. Uh, Patrick here, welcoming you back to a brand new episode of Dark and Devious. Hey there, and happy birthday to me this week. Yes, uh, happy birthday, Chris. Feliz cumpleaños. <laughs> it is uh, so exciting to be sharing a little bit of my birthday week with all of you. And all I want for my birthday is for you to enjoy this episode. Well, I think your wish will be granted, Chris, <laughs> um, by our lovely deviants and any newcomers that may have joined us, which, yeah, happy birthday. That's exciting. Any big yeah. plans? Um, I think I'm going to keep it pretty low key. I actually, it's funny, I have an obligation on my birthday. Um, I sing with the Twin Cities Gay Men's Chorus, and we have a, a performance in the morning. Um, it's for the for a conference, so it's just like a small set. But it's like I have to get up early and I have to, <laughs> I have to show up. Um, but it'll be fun and it'll get me going early in the day. Um, I'm gonna go out to eat with my parents and my partner, and then I hope to just finish out the day um, going to my neighborhood bar and having people just stop by and say hello. So that's kind of my general roadmap. To my Aww. to my birthday this this weekend, yeah, it's gonna be. Well, I wish I could be there to celebrate with you. Well, <clears throat> at least I can still see you physically, or like, like through the screen. Virtually, here. virtually, <laughs> yes, not physically. That's <laughs> not what I meant. So it, it's something. It's better than just a regular old phone call. Yeah, that's nice. And that's yeah. a nice way to think about it. Um, I'm definitely sending you some some sunshine and warm vibes from oh my Austin. gosh I know I would love that we're we're getting our first flurries and stuff up here in Minnesota so I'm I'm sure you are just happy as a clam to be down there in the warmth of Texas well anyone who knows me just <laughs> knows my love of winter oh yeah I, I sense a little bit of sarcasm <laughs> Uh, yeah, so it is um, November 18th and I'm wearing shorts and the sun <laughs> is shining and although it's tired from moving and unpacking, I'm very, very happy here in the warmth and the sunshine. Yes. So and, and we should note here at the top of this episode that that apologies for the, the lateness of this one because our lives have just been super crazy this week and they have like and, you were working back-to-back -back schedules yeah, yeah. multiple jobs and I and we finally just... got the keys to our house and we moved in over the course of two and a half days and everything is in the house everything is in boxes or on the floor or on a cabinet and my OCD is 
going through the roof because I, was I like say, things neat <laughs> and clean. <laughs> Anybody who knows Patrick knows that disorder is your least favorite thing. Uh, and uh, and when I so when when you logged on and I saw there was just bare walls behind you, I'm like, oh, I'm surprised everything's not unpacked already, like and set because I just feel like that would drive you crazy to not have everything where it's supposed to be. But it's a process. I mean, movie your whole life. Yeah, it, states is a big undertaking. I mean, it really is. I mean, I've moved a lot, but that was before I got coupled up and before I got married. Because, um, you know, I moved around the world of three times. And that's crazy to me. I, as someone who's only moved twice. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but when I did that, I didn't bring any furniture. Um, I trusted my cat with my parents who gave her love and care while I was away. And for many years, I just kind of like bounced around just myself with a bag of clothes. And when I got to my new living situation, I just bought what I needed. I sold what I didn't every time I left. And this is the first time that I've moved not only with another person, but actually bringing physical things that are huge and require a lot of lifting and multiple days of packing and loading and unloading and it's a process so yeah I know I, you were talking about before we started how how the the early boxes were all nice and neat and organized <laughs> and then the later boxes was just like everything that was in sight that could fit in the boxes just shoved in there yeah so like even though the boxes are labeled like kitchen or bathroom or games or miscellaneous you know I'll move one box of the kitchen that says kitchen. I open it up and voila, there are my pots and pans. There are my plates. Everything's in order. Great. I open the next box that says kitchen and it's like shoes and blankets and DVDs and cat toys. And then one item that belongs in the kitchen. <laughs> it's like, what? but yeah, it's, it's a process, but I'm, I'm, we are both, my husband and I are very glad to be here. We love our new house. Uh, we're getting to know the neighborhood. Obviously it's day three, so we don't know anything. Yeah. And did you want to share your, your newfound, well, not really newfound passion, but your uh, delightful find within your neighborhood? My reunited love. Yes, that's, that's true. <laughs> Um, so both my husband and I have a love for 7-Eleven, um, particularly 7-Elevens that are not in the USA, because let me tell you, listeners in Asia, you should cherish what you have, because American 7-Elevens put Asian 7-Elevens to shame. But anyways, we have a 7-Eleven, just like a 10, 15 minute walk from our house, so I was able to go and get some coffee this morning and they have so many different like soda and snack options. And I love me a 7-Eleven and it's right. right there. And for those that don't know, Minnesota is the land of snow and ice and no 7-Elevens. As I far as the eye There's can maybe see. one. <laughs> Somewhere. Somewhere. <laughs> But yeah. And also, so, did you say? Did you mean to say that the the Asian ones are better than the American ones? Yes, by okay. far. Okay. 
I was confused there. I thought you said the opposite. I'm like, I think that's what he means. Um, but yeah, so the apparent, like the Asian 7-Elevens are just have amazing offerings. Oh gosh, yes. Like they are wonderful, especially the ones in Japan. Like from our experience, once Japan reigns superior. That's like um, Japan gets all of the most amazing flavors of candy for some reason. Like, mm-hmm. uh, like all of the, like the Kit Kat bars that have different flavors. I think they have like a cherry blossom one or they something. Do. Yeah. And it, I, I got to try one once and like, this is so freaking good. Like, why don't they sell this in America? Like, do they think that we're too stupid to enjoy this flavor? It's so good. I know. Japan um, has so many nice things, but yeah. we could, anyways, we could go on forever about yes. 7-Eleven. Well, so. I'm glad that you are reunited with 7-Elevens and, uh, I, and I saw you with your, your, 7-Eleven coffee, so bringing you joy. <laughs> so but, yeah, wow, it sounds like you're getting good and settled. We are. Um, it'll still be a process, but we are here, and eventually, I will not be chronically tired. <laughs> <laughs> I I I hope the same for myself too. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but well, we've also got an update oh. from last week's episode because there was some developments like right the or it was like the day we were we were recording wasn't it yes so um so for those of you that did not listen to last week's episode i covered the murder of minneapolis real estate agent monique ball who was murdered on new year's eve of 2019 at a staged home showing and the two men who actually committed the act of murder upon her, Cedric Barry and Barry Davis, were subjected to life in prison, which I covered. So please go back and listen to that episode. It's an important story. Her story needs to be told. However, there were a few accomplices, one being Elsa Segura and the other main accomplice being Lyndon Wiggins. And on the day of recording last week, uh, Elsa Segura was subject to face her sentencing, and I am plead proud to announce that the jury found 29-year-old Elsa Segura guilty of aiding and abetting premeditating first-degree murder and sentencing her to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Whoa, that is, that's pretty serious. Mm-hmm. She was found guilty on all accounts. And, you know, given all the evidence that we heard last week, I mean, if any other sentencing were to have been reached, I'm not sure if I would have been pleased with that. So justice was served on her yeah. portion. And then Lyndon Wiggins is interesting so Lyndon Wiggins was supposed to stand trial and face the same possible sentencing. However, he's currently in custody behind bars right now for um, fentanyl and multiple other narcotics drug trafficking. Whoa, so there could be a lot more to come for him. Uh-huh. And as of right now, he's sitting behind bars in a Minnesota state prison 
uh, under a sentencing of 19 years related to drug trafficking charges. Dang. Uh, I mean, and especially because right now it seems like that's really in the, the headlines a lot is you hear so much about people overdosing um, and fentanyl being a prime suspect in a lot of these overdoses. So it's like, wow, you are you are literally peddling poison. Like drugs is bad enough, but it's like serial murder type stuff almost. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm glad that he is off the streets and will hopefully never cause anybody else to die ever again. I mean, not only is he directly linked to being an accomplice in Monique's murder, mm-hmm. but I'm there's not a doubt in my mind that through his drug trafficking, that whether it's been like an overdose or a drug dispute or an, an exchange gone wrong, maybe yeah. not directly linked to him, but he's somewhere in that chain of people mm-hmm. that's connected to another death, if not more. Yeah. It's a it's it's very much a ripple effect. It sounds like it, yes, very much so. Um, so yeah. So and then as far as uh, Shantae Davis goes, there's still there's just nothing on her. I cannot find mm. anything on her. So listeners, if you can find out if Shantae Davis is set to stand trial, I know that she has been charged, but I can't find anything about her trial date. Um, if you could find out and, you know, send us a message at darkanddeviouspodcast at gmail.com, or if you know us personally, just shoot us a text so we know, and then we can let everyone else know. Yes, that would be very interesting to find out. I, I like it when we can get those little loose ends at the, like, it's always interesting to find out what happens after the crime is really like solved. Right. So. Wow. So, so many things going on and so many interesting things to talk about. And mm-hmm. and one thing that I want to talk about, but I think we should uh, hold our lips a little tight for the time being would just be the trial of the men who murdered um, Ahmed. Ahmed Arbery, yes. Ahmed Arbery. Um, they are facing trial right now. Mm-hmm. And then also the teenager from Wisconsin or I think he's from he, Illinois, but it the the crime happened in Wisconsin, so I think he's being tried in Wisconsin. Yeah. Um, so for yeah, Kyle Rittenhouse, the deliberations are going on right now. Which who knows? By the time we post this episode, there could be an answer. But yeah, it just it makes me very uneasy with both of those. I like there are people who clearly deserve consequences for their actions. And I am really nervous that they won't get, or that, yeah, that they'll get off with a slap on the wrist. And if that, if that happens, I am very concerned with what the repercussions will be. I have a feeling, I'm not going to say which case, because I don't want to start a de- like heavily disputed debate, yeah. but I just have a feeling that one of the cases that the evidence is just so, so clear, cut and dry that I, I feel like justice will be served. But the other one, I'm with you. I'm a little nervous about what's gonna happen. Um, so yeah, we can keep our eyes on the news yeah. and fingers crossed, just as in the case of Monique Baugh, that mm-hmm. justice is served. Yes. Cause it can happen. 
Yeah, it can happen. That's, that was our uplifting message from last episode that justice can happen. And, and you know, it's not always families waiting for years and years to find out what happened to their loved ones. So exactly. It can happen. Um, um, well, speaking with- of waiting, um, I feel like we've let our listeners wait a little longer than usual. And that includes me too, because I'm a listener this week, Chris. Yes, you are. And um, I cannot wait to hear your story. Are you ready to tell us? I am very ready. Okay, Chris. Um, I've been waiting a few extra days and I am excited. Well, I think it will be worth the wait because this is, uh, it's like a, a buffet of, of stories for you. Um, and you'll see why in just a moment. Side note, I'm really bad at buffets because like <laughs> I get full really fast. I can only have like one plate and then I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm good. Yeah, it's, so not, I, it's not worth it for you. <laughs> but I feel like this, I can, I can, I can stomach this, I'm yes. good. <laughs> well, it took us a while to get here, but we finally reached an incredible milestone. And that is that Dark and Devious has finally been listened to in all 50 states. Oh my gosh, I did not know that. And it's funny because I was like every week I've been looking, I've been counting all the states because like because it'll tell you the country and then you click on the country and it'll tell you like the more specific. Like the provinces and the cities. Yeah, yeah. provinces or the the states or depending on what country. Um, and yeah, this last week, thank you to whoever our listener in the Wilmington, Delaware area was. Um, because Shout out to a, Wilmington. Yes, you finally uh, helped us check off that final state. So thank you so much, Delaware. Uh, and so what I was originally going to do was if we hadn't gotten a listen listener from Delaware, I was like, well, all right, I've obviously got to amp it up and give them something that they'll want to hear. And I was going to do all these, I was going to do uh, a sampling of Delaware story. <laughs> and now I can still do that, but celebrating the fact that we finally got a listener in Delaware. Oh my gosh, this is so fun. I love this. And, and now maybe because um, this is all about like Delaware true crime stuff that maybe we'll become the number one true crime podcast in Delaware for this episode. Who knows? That would be fun. That would be super fun. Like I want to celebrate, but it's not even noon. So <laughs> <laughs> so cheers with my 7-Eleven coffee, yes, everyone. Cheers. I already finished my, uh, my <laughs> peppermint mocha. I'm so, I'm so sad that the, <laughs> at Trader Joe's, we have these peppermint mochas, but they're super limited and they're already done. Like, but I, luckily I had like 12 in the fridge. <laughs> um, so yes, thank you to our Wilmington, Delaware listener. Um, so I thought, covering some Delaware cases would be a, a great way to celebrate being listened to in all 50 states. What a wonderful thing to do. And I'm so glad that you were keeping track of this because like I keep track of the countries pretty yeah, thoroughly, yeah. <laughs> but I forget about the states and I, I'm so excited for this week. Yeah. Let's go. So Delaware has a rich and fascinating history and it is known as the first state 
because it is the first state to have um, to ratify the US Constitution on December 7th, 1787. Now, as you can imagine, with a long history, there are bound to be a few skeletons in the closets, so to speak. But before we get into the grittier side of Delaware's history, here are a few interesting bits about the state. So as I mentioned, Delaware is known as the first state, but did you know it's also known as the diamond state? No, there aren't vast riches to be mined out of the ground here, but it does get the nickname because President Thomas Jefferson is said to have called the state a jewel among the states because of its strategic location on the East Coast. Okay. Which is funny because I always wondered that like diamond state, like. I didn't think they were known for mining. <laughs> I was like, my mind went straight to like a diamond in the rough. <laughs> I was like, maybe it's because everywhere around, like there was It's a dig at all the states around it. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Delaware um, yeah, should actually really... be known as the shady state. <laughs> cast shade on everyone around them. That's uh, but it really is, it's situated really perfectly, uh, especially when you think about kind of colonial America, like you're close to Philadelphia and Baltimore and Washington, D.C., and you've got all this, um, this open access to the coast. Um, so you've, you've got a great access point for trade and stuff like that. So it really does seem like a, a really great spot to be situated. Um, the state gets its name from explorer uh, Samuel Argall, who in 1610 named the Delaware River and Bay for the governor of Virginia, whose name is Thomas West, Lord Delaware. So hmm. you slur that last part together, Delaware, Delaware. That's what that's where it came from, I guess. You just throw an American accent on it. <laughs> the first, the first American accent. Right. Tom Capano and Anne Marie Fahey traveled in the same political and professional circles when they met in the spring of 1994. Capano was part of a family of real estate developers and building contractors. He was a lawyer, a state prosecutor, a city attorney for the city of Wilmington, and a member of former governor Mike Castle's legal team. Obviously, that was not all at the same time. Those were various things. I was going to say, he's very busy. <laughs> How would he have time to uh, have an affair with, with all that work on his plate? Uh, overall, he was a big shot in the in Delaware's political circles. When Anne-Marie met Capano, he was a partner at the law firm Saul Ewing LLP. The two hit it off right away early on. Anne-Marie even described Capano as very gentle, intelligent, handsome, and interesting in her diary on April 24th, 1994. But there was one little problem. Capano was already married to a woman named Kathleen Ryan since 1972. So they'd kind of been together for a while. They got a little bit of history there. Yeah. And uh, they also had four daughters together. So And some baggage. Yeah. I mean, it's he's got a family. Yeah. Uh, Anne-Marie seemed a bit off-put 
by his marital status, but Capano convinced her that his marriage was already over in everything but name. You know, the most important part. I hate this so much already. because Right? I know. He's such a slimeball and it gets even worse. I feel like, yeah, people, people like Amory just go into things like this with so much false hope. Yeah, like, oh, like this is, they're going to get a new start with me. Like they're going to end things properly so that they can be with me. And I got to tell you, it doesn't seem to work that way very often. Until you see that divorce uh, agreement signed and filed, it's just, it's a dangerous and not (laughs) not emotionally smart road to go down. Right, it's, you're setting yourself up for a lot of heartache. Yeah. She came to accept his explanation and over time, their intimate friendship turned into an illicit affair. The whole concept of being the other woman was new to Anne-Marie, but Capano was already a pro. He had cheated on his wife already with his former legal partner's ex-wife, Deborah McIntyre, for 15 years. Wow. And to top it off, like the cherry on the top of this is that Deborah was also a friend of Capano's wife. To Like that just complicates things even more. I want, did you happen to see like how that trickled out? Like were they discovered? Did they end it? Did... Well, you'll, you'll see kind of, it'll, it kind of unfolds throughout. Um, So yeah, like Capano seems to be juggling ladies on the side, as well as being this Delaware big shot. It's, it sounds really stressful, honestly, like just give me one person and I'm, I'm happy. One person's, I mean, Committed relationships are not supposed to be work, but they really are work. <laughs> and one person is already a lot to like right? emotionally That's... take on, <laughs> let alone another. <laughs> right. He is obviously uh, n- not taking other people's feelings into consideration. Um, so this guy has a wife and kids, a slow burn 15 year affair with his wife's friend and now he's trying to start up a new romance with the governor's secretary. When, when did this guy have time to do lawyer stuff uh, when he's not trying to juggle all of these women? Like it just, it boggles the mind. Now, some might find it hard to picture these two together because Anne-Marie and Capano were nearly two decades apart in age, which that's age is just a number usually, as long as it's legal. As long as it's legal and consenting and and you're happy, why not? But it really didn't seem to be, it kind of makes, when you see pictures of these two, it's just like, what did she see in this guy? Um, But obviously, you know, when you're not in that mindset, you don't necessarily know what it is that they're finding appealing. Uh, But Capano was very sure of himself. I guess when you've had professional success and you've been able to carry on a long-term affair for so long, there's pretty much nothing that can stop you. So he probably, you know, thought that he had the world eating out of his hand. And, and honestly, confidence is attractive usually. 
So despite all of Anne-Marie's beauty and intelligence, she suffered from low self-esteem. She battled eating disorders like anorexia and bulimia and struggled financially most of her life um, as she came from a, a working class family. So that, it seems like, okay, that sets the ground for somebody who is well off and uh, in, in a position of power and really confident to kind of swoop in and, and just kind of sweep her off her feet. Um, yeah. And it's all that she's never had. Right. And, you know, it sounds like she's looking for stability mm -hmm. and a safe place. Exactly. Capano, though, was well off and generous when it was necessary. He gave her free legal advice, paid for her car windshield when it needed to be replaced, and showered her with new clothing, purses, and fine dining. That kind of life was hard to imagine giving up. So Anne-Marie spent two years doing the on-again, off-again relationship, oftentimes fantasizing that Capano would leave his wife for her. Deborah McIntyre had the same thought and it hadn't manifested after a decade and a half. Also, why buy the cow when you can get the milk for free? You know, if he's getting what he wants out of the relationship, like he has no motivation to uh, actually leave the stability of his family life. Exactly. It's like he her. has this very comfortable home life with his mm -hmm. long-term devoted wife. I'm sure a very nice house. And then his two affairs, which obviously right. are not as stable or as you know, emotionally or even like financially well-established, you know? I'm sure there's a lot of things playing into these right, decisions. Right, yeah, all of that stuff could factor in. Um, so he could control his impressionable young mistress so he didn't need to marry her. When she tried to pull away from Capano, he would use both kindness and fury to try and keep her on the line. The pair exchanged flurries of emails. He would send flowers, make grand promises to leave his family for her. But then on the other end, he would demand that, you know, if she was gonna leave him, that she would have to return every gift that he had ever given her. So it's like, oh, like, remember all these things I gave you? Well, if you're gonna ditch me, then you have to give all those back. And she probably didn't want to do that. That's... So it's kind of like a, like he would kind of give with one hand and take with the other. Or it's almost like he's giving everything, but it's attached to a pole. He's like, yeah. you can have this, but the minute you decide you want to leave me or make me unhappy, I'm just going to pull that pole right back over the line and it's no longer yours. Right. That is like the definition of strings attached. Exactly. She thought that she could extricate herself from their affair and remain friends, but again and again, he wormed his way back into her life. Anne-Marie, while not flaunting her affair, did mention to some close acquaintances that she felt Capano was too controlling and had the potential to hurt her. In her diary, the gentle, intelligent, handsome man had turned into a controlling, manipulative, insecure, jealous 
maniac in just two years. And were those her words in the diary? Those were her, that was a direct quote from her diary. Those are very strong words. They're complete polar opposites. Mm-hmm. And especially to to go from the the kind of dreamy way she described him when they met. And then after this ongoing relationship to be like, no, he's a ma- an absolute maniac. Uh, it's no surprise that what happened next happened. Hmm. So for Christmas in 1995, Capano bought Anne-Marie an airline ticket to Spain, but she turned it down. So good for you, girl. I, <laughs> I that would be very hard to turn down a free vacation to Spain. Um, but that was the right thing to do because she was, she knew that if I accept this, there are going to be strings attached to it. Um, With her history, it could have just been part of the ups and downs of their rocky relationship. But there was something else. She had met somebody else, a man named Michael Scanlon. Michael was a much better match for Anne-Marie. He was an executive and he was around her age. And most importantly, he was single. (laughs) <laughs> That's kind of a, an important factor there. Yes. Uh, their romance was budding and Capano was slowly losing his grip on Anne-Marie the more she fell in love with this new guy. On top of that, in 1995, Capano really did separate from his wife, Kay. So maybe he felt like he was losing his mojo a little bit, you know, because now he actually is Uh, in the process of getting out of this marriage. And, but now his, his mistress is kind of not, doesn't have the time for him anymore. Yeah. It's like, he's losing his long-term marriage Mm -hmm. and his like backup side affair person is no longer interested in him. So I'm sure he's feeling very like emasculated. I, I would imagine so. And this guy does not sound like the type to take being emasculated well. So Anne-Marie was kind of on the taller side. She was 5'10", and he had to actually damage her body to force it into the cramped, like, cooler. He then returned Anne-Marie's dress and shoes, as well as a couple of other items to her apartment to make it look as if she had been there. And he even turned on the air conditioning and, and then locked, uh, locked the door behind him using Anne-Marie's key. That's so premeditated. Right? Well, and so the reason they, they think that, um, that he somehow got her to, un- or to willingly take off her dress was because there was no blood on the dress. Like the dress was spotless. It was just like flung over a chair at, at her apartment. Um, so... And, and what I also thought was fishy was that uh, her friends and family describe her as being like a very neat kind of fastidious person. So there's no way she would have just like threw her dress over the, uh, you know, over a chair or something like that. She would have hung it up and there was like some groceries that were left out. And it's like, no, she would never just leave that, 
because it just like left fruit out to rot basically yeah it's not it's not Anne marie yeah it's like there is something this is somebody trying to make it look like she was there but they obviously didn't pay enough attention to the details of her life to know that that's not what she would do so the next day he disposed of his couch and his rug and ordered new ones so again who just decides like oh i'm the day after this person disappears i'm just happen to need to get a new couch and a new rug uh and i guess he also enlisted the help of one of his brothers in um ditching the couch and the rug in dumpsters that they knew were going to be emptied like right away wow. so they wouldn't give anybody a chance to even catch wind that where did this bloody couch come from you know right um so his uh he did enlist the help of his youngest brother gerald who had been in and out of trouble himself so i guess uh you know his older brother was always probably helping him out with his legal troubles because he's this high-powered lawyer. Um, so he's kind of got that hanging over his younger brother. Uh, so Gerald owned a boat. And when his older brother requested his help disposing of a body, he was willing to go along with the plan. What are, like, how do two, or not two, I guess, how does someone just like say like, oh, you got a body? Sure, I'll help you dump it. I know this feels like, is this a mafia family? Because like what sibling would be like, yeah, sure, I'll help you. Um, but then again, at the time too, Capano told his brother that the body was of somebody who was trying to extort him. So it was kind of like, oh, this is a bad person who was like trying to threaten me and uh and oh they wound up dead so it was like it, he tried to sell it as justifiable somehow and i guess his brother bought the story or was afraid uh, that you know he would lose the help of his brother in future stuff i don't know i'm guessing um he probably had some dirt on his younger brother yeah from a previous like lawsuit or a pending one that he was facing because it sounds like his brother was like in and out of legal trouble yeah so maybe older brother who always saved the day could pull. Yeah, some maybe he won't save your your behind if if yeah. you don't help him out with this. Yeah, but it does make it seem like he really sold it to his brother as some sort of justifiable homicide, and that they needed to get rid of the body because he didn't want to get in trouble for it. So it also makes me wonder, like maybe these brothers just have questionable morals all around so the brothers capano went out uh far into the atlantic and dumped the cooler with Anne marie's body in it into the ocean but there was one problem the cooler didn't sink they had to recover the cooler remove the body and bind it to an anchor to make sure that the body was never found the cooler was also thrown into the sea did it sink that time? Well, you'll see something kind of funny happens with that. Wouldn't you know it? The ice chest 
didn't sink, um, but was actually recovered shortly thereafter by a fisherman and it was turned over to the authorities. So the, the authorities now had this cooler that I'm sure probably had maybe a little bit of blood or there must've been something fishy about, I keep saying fishy and I'm talking about <laughs> a fisherman. And I think that's, that's really funny, but I guess that's, just, there's no other way to say it. Uh, but there was obviously something off-putting about this cooler. Otherwise they would have never turned it over to Well, also why is a cooler just floating in the mid middle of the Atlantic ocean? Yeah, well, and these coolers, I guess they are used on fishing boats to to um, to like keep fish in, uh, like the to keep the catch in. Sure. And they, I mean, these are big, big coolers. Yeah. I mean, obviously fit a body inside it. Mm -hmm. So the, the cooler got turned over to authorities and that that's not the only thing that Capano uh, wished had stayed buried. Uh, he had numerous strikes against him uh, once the investigation began into the disappearance of Anne Marie. Um, and they started looking for her just three days later uh, after that dinner date of June 30th. Um, so first, Tom Capano was the last one seen with Anne-Marie before she disappeared, which is never a good sign. Mm -mm. Anne never... had a very tense dinner. At yes, that. exactly. Like, I, like they interviewed um, people who had been dining nearby and, uh, and their server and I, everybody recognized them because of the tense situation there. So yeah, you never wanna be the last person seen with someone before they disappeared. No just overall that's a red flag um so the next thing um his sudden new rug and couch purchases the day after the dinner date was also extremely suspicious uh, you don't just up and redecorate just one day and the fact that it happens to be the day after the last time anybody saw this person alive also just incredibly suspicious mm-hmm um, then there's the fact that Anne-Marie already had expressed her fear that Capano was capable of violence, uh, both the close confidence as well as written in her diary. So there's, there's that kind of that seed was already planted that this person might be uh, a threat in the future. Where it's kind of like the, you ever hear those stories where people are like, if I ever go missing, you this person is probably <laughs> responsible. Right. Yep. Uh, then there is the the cooler that was recovered could be tracked back to Capano. So there must have been maybe like a sales receipt or maybe a serial number or something. But however yeah. they were able to, they were able to trace that specific cooler back to Capano. I love how they can do that. Remember when I covered Issei Sagawa? Yes. How he used like very expensive, fancy luggage and the luggage itself had a suit, which like who knew luggage had serial numbers, but apparently they do. Right. I mean, honestly, it, that can be the difference between solving a case mm -hmm. or not solving a case because it's that little bit of physical evidence. So mm -hmm. again, that's one of those things where like, don't even try to commit a crime people because that, like you will use 
you'll use like a hammer and like the hammer will have a, a serial number on it. And it'll be like, oh, that was sold to this guy. And then suddenly you're going to jail for murder. Yeah. It's <laughs> crazy in a good way. Yes. Um, then there is Deb McIntyre. I mean, who obviously must have still been involved with Capano in some capacity here. Uh, she bought a gun for Capano and he told her that that he had been uh, threatened by somebody and that he was fearing for his safety. But Deb McIntyre turned on, on Capano and ended up testifying against him. So it's one, it's like, well, if you're so scared, get your own damn gun. Right. Uh, don't drag me into this. Uh, but I think Deb probably figured that dang, I very well could be responsible for buying a murder weapon. Like maybe I should cooperate so that I don't get a bunch of blowback for this. Um, but obviously if somebody else tries, tells you to buy a gun for them, no, never do that because it's going to come back to you. Mm -hmm. It's going to come back to haunt you. Uh, and then there's finally, uh, upon closer inspection of Capano's residence, a small spatter of blood was found on a baseboard that was determined to belong to Anne Marie, which it shows the, the lengths he was willing to go in order to cover up his crime because when investigators came to his home, that place was spotless. So he must have deep cleaned that whole room. And thankfully there was that one little spot that he missed and like, boom, there's, there's always like a a hair fragment or that tiny blood spot or like a half of a palm print there's always oh, yeah. something left behind it, it's like they will find that like we have i mean and this was in the 90s like the mid 90s uh just imagine how much more advanced technology has gotten I mean, now it's like you, like you said, you find a carpet fiber, a carpet fiber or a, um, or a hair sample. All it takes is like one hair. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, we've got you at the scene of the crime. Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's incredible. So all of this spelled bad news for Capano. He was arrested on, in November of 1997 and put on trial in October of 1998. The defense fed the court a story that somehow McIntyre was the one responsible for the killing. Uh, they kind of described in a, a movie cat fight situation where like the gun accidentally went off as they like struggled, they wrestled for it. Uh -huh. um, but that did not vibe with all of the other evidence. Um, the trial went on for 12 weeks. Uh, but in the end, the jury didn't buy the story that the defense was was selling, and they found Tom Capano guilty of first-degree murder. Now, I'm sorry to interrupt, but did they ever find Anne-Marie's body? They did not. Okay. So it is kind of surprising to have a conviction without a body. Yes, it is. Uh, but uh, obviously the evidence was enough to convince a jury and i mean frankly i'm convinced that something <laughs> and that this is exactly how it happened sure 
So when he was sentenced in January of 1999, he was sentenced to death by lethal injection. Um, as was to be expected, there were appeals, but Capano's conviction was reaffirmed. However, his sentence was remanded due to a non-unanimous jury, which was 11 to one, by the way. So that one person um, spared him that lethal injection. Mm -hmm. uh, but instead he was given life in prison without the possibility of parole. So it's kind of crazy that like, well, he got a second chance that he didn't give his victim. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, a lot of times people think like, uh, life in prison is worse because you literally are just stuck inside for the like you you don't get to go out and do fun things anymore like you are literally just stuck in one place for the mm -hmm. until you just expire naturally exactly so, um he was housed in the james t vaughn correctional center in newcastle county delaware where he pretty much literally rotted away at a 2006 court hearing, he appeared pale and severely bloated. The cocky ladies man he had once been was long gone. On September 19th, 2011 at age 61, Tom Capano was found dead in his cell during a routine check in the middle of the day. The cause of death was cardiac arrest due to cardiovascular disease and obesity. When his death was announced, Anne-Marie's brother, Robert, said that Capano's death was long overdue. Hmm. And I would have agreed with them. It's kind of refreshing to hear that since I feel like so many people are always like, oh, I forgive you. Uh, you know, that they're sort of like, that's how they heal is to, to forgive the person who like killed their loved one. But I also am like, yeah, that's, kind of the the human response I feel like to be like good I'm like I do not uh regret this guy's death at all because he's a piece of trash and he took my sister away yeah from this world after he took something that could never be replaced yeah I get um, it so hopefully now that Capano is dead the family can have a little closure knowing that there's no way that that he could ever harm another person ever again so there's the end of the first part of my Delaware's Most Notorious. Well, I must say, um, I'm surprised this isn't more widely known. Maybe it's just because it's, you know, over 20 years later. Mm -hmm. um, I think Anne Rule, um, who is kind of that le a legendary uh, true crime writer, mm -hmm. she did write a book about this. But obviously, yeah, it's been like, now 24, 20, yeah, almost 25 years later. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like it was, you said it was 12 weeks long was the court case, but I feel like it was pretty swift, you know, even though it was three months for in and out of court, I feel like it was all not circumstantial evidence, but not concrete evidence as well, because there was no body. Mm -hmm. I imagine they probably had to rely on a lot of testimony from a lot of people. Yes. Like this was sort of uh, uh, like any one piece wouldn't necessarily be uh, the, the nail in the coffin, but 
when you assemble this huge mountain of evidence, it's it's just like you you can't deny it after that. So it's nice. uh, it goes to show that like every little piece of evidence really counts in a case like that. Mm-hmm. Very very true. Well, I'm glad that um, Anne Marie got justice and her family felt justice was served. Mm-hmm. And I I agree. I feel like uh, Tom got got what's coming to him he he chose to take Anne-Marie out of this world and that ultimately led him to his very isolated and probably lonely death yeah yeah well great job on that first uh story from Delaware and I can't wait to hear what's next yes so my next case of Delaware's most notorious is the case of the chocolate candy murders that happened nearly a century before the last case. Ooh, I love me a oldie and a goodie. Yeah, I mean, this is li- literally, I mean, a sweet treat. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so the story is of Cordelia Botkin. Um, <gasps> I know her. <laughs> you do? I do. <laughs> So Cordelia Botkin, um, who was, uh, before she was married, she was Cordelia Brown. Also, I think she sounds like a, um, a character from Charmed. Like, couldn't you see that being like a guest character? Like, Cordelia Botkin. I mean, Cordelia in any type of like, kind of darkish, but not like, su- not serious dark, but like hearted yeah. dark. Like, I feel I mean, like that's... she would be in Sabrina... Oh yeah, yeah, yes. <laughs> I mean, obviously, I, I mean, there's already a Cordelia on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah, so. yep. Um, so this Cordelia was born in Kansas City, Missouri, in 1854. She married a man named William. Bo- or I always think it's William, but it's Welcome. What? A, what? His first name is Welcome. Like, is it spelled the same as like, welcome to my home? Yes, exactly. Uh, but my my mind tries to autocorrect it to William. <laughs> well, you know what? Kudos to his parents for being the original, like... Hippie like, namer. <laughs> yeah, like those parents that named their child, the, like, like... Sunshine or something. I was going to go more like Apple. Like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> but so welcome. Welcome, yes. Ankadoria. So they married in 1872 and they had a son named Beverly. So really Beverly Botkin, like they didn't think about how that sounds. Beverly Botkin, it just, it just sounds funny to me. Like that alliteration. Uh-huh. I would and go also, by BB if I were Beverly. <laughs> also that, I feel like uh, that's, that's one of those names that, that they were like, oh, Beverly isn't, isn't butch enough or something like you know uh-huh. so that we, they just like kind of stopped using that name for boys maybe but i kind of like that in this case but also i feel bad because i feel like kids probably would have made fun of him anyway i don't know kids yeah i think i really think anything. parents should think long and hard about not what they want for their child but about what, yeah. what that child may want for themselves exactly yeah yeah uh, <laughs> it's like you should just be able to choose your own name when you turn <laughs> like 21. Sure. The family moved from Missouri to Stockton, California, where her husband made a living as a grain broker. Uh, 
but their marriage was apparently not as sunny as their California home. The two eventually became estranged and Cordelia became infatuated with a new man. Enter John P. Dunning. Now, John was almost a decade younger than Cordelia, but something about her must have been quite intriguing to him because he had uh, a great life going for himself, like without this new person in his life. So John was also married and he was married to a woman from a prominent family. His wife was Mary Elizabeth Pennington Dunning, the daughter of Congressman John Brown Pennington, who had a long career in politics and law in the state of Delaware, uh, as well as serving in the US Congress. John had a rather exciting life working for the Associated Press who had given him a job in San Francisco in 1891 as the Bureau Chief of the Associated Press's Western Division. It seems like a pretty like solid job. You've got this wife from this prominent family, like things seem to be going well. Uh, in 1892, the couple had a baby girl that they named Elizabeth. And together they lived at 2529 California Street in San Francisco. But again, here's another family that suffered a not so rosy fate. John liked to drink and gamble, a recipe for total disaster. He racked up thousands of dollars in gambling debts, which would prove to be his professional undoing. Mm, I you hear that so much with the well-to-do people like money they money helps them get to where they eventually wind up as successful people but it often can bring them straight back down that's right so while while Cordelia was estranged from her husband she took their child and went to San Francisco where she met John Dunning while he was biking through Golden State Park. So it was funny, I imagine since this is like the 1890s, I imagine him riding one of those those uh, bicycles with a giant front wheel. And like the, the two tiny wheels in back. Yeah, where it just, and it would be like, hello up there, like, cause you'd be like 10 feet off the ground or whatever. And the person up, up top would have one of those old horns they held up to their ear. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, I could totally, I could totally see this. Uh, so Cordelia was not what you'd consider a classic beauty. She was often described in accounts as being frumpy, but certainly seemed to make up with it with her body personality. She thought very highly of herself and bragged about being photographed in over a hundred poses. Oh my goodness. Her favorite being uh, with her hands behind her head and her elbows out, which I guess was very scandalous for Victorian times. I mean, especially if those elbows were showing. Oh my God, God forbid. <laughs> Um, so I guess it only makes sense that a gambler and a drinker would fall for someone who liked to play loose with their traditional morals of the day. 
The two began carrying on a torrid affair with the two of them renting rooms at the Victoria Hotel to better suit their rendezvous. Now, where the children were during all this, I'd like to know because these two seem to be very lackluster parents at this point. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep. <laughs> I'm really hoping that the children were like with their other parents uh, at, at this That's point. what it seems. Yeah. Or honestly, they're working. Yeah, it's... Depending on the age of the kids at the time. I think they were pretty little. Okay. <laughs> Probably too, too young to be a newspaper boys or something. Uh, so John's wife got wind of the affair and Mary, who was very proper and religious, was not about to put up with this nonsense from her husband. She took her daughter, packed up her things, and moved back to Dover, Delaware, where her family was. The affair went on for several years, but John got a a little professional payback when he was fired from the AP for embezzling $4,000 to pay off gambling debts. Also, it's like $4,000 in 1890 uh, money. Uh, that is a lot of gambling debt. Oh. Like, what were you betting on? Like, dude. Well, and like the populations of cities weren't that high either. So like, who else is betting that much to get that high value of stakes, right? It's like- Unless he was just like, he owed uh, like a bunch of different people. Like, uh, he had like- 50 different people he was gambling with and he lost all of them. I don't know. That's probably it. I guess the man just did not know when to quit when it came to gambling, but he did know when to call it quits with Cordelia. John was rehired by the AP, but just as a journalist. So he wasn't like the head of the Western division like before. Okay. Um, And when the Spanish-American War broke out in 1898, he was sent to cover the story. Which I looked it up and the Spanish-American War, it was like it started in in like April of that year and it was like over by October or something. Right, it wasn't that long. It was short. It was all all within one year. Um, So he was sent to cover the story. And when he left, he told Cordelia that when he returned home after he would be returning to his wife and child in Dover, not to her in San Francisco. Mm. Cordelia saw him off as he left for the front lines, but she was absolutely bitter about the whole thing. The thought of John reuniting with his wife drove Cordelia crazy. That's when she began harassing Mary through the mail. It started with taunting letters that rubbed her husband's affair in her face and cast doubt on any hopes she might have of reconciling with her husband. Into the summer, a distraught Cordelia stewed in her rage. Around this time, she purchased purchased two ounces of powdered arsenic from the Owl drugstore. Why the hell anybody would need to buy arsenic uh, for around the house stuff like I don't understand I mean I think back then it was still commonly used as like a pest deterrent maybe I I guess which but is also that you can just pick it up at your corner drugstore just like blows my mind right and I I think people realized that arsenic is something that could kill a person uh I don't know 
Um, I guess when she was asked about this later, she said that she was using it to bleach a straw hat. I don't understand. I don't know. Who's to say? I mean, we didn't live in that time. <laughs> right? I mean... There was nothing else to do but bleach straw hats with arsenic. It's just Sunday. You got to bleach your hat. <laughs> um, and also during this time, she expressed like a curiosity about like what it would be like to die from arsenic poisoning. Her friends described her as melancholy and delusional during this time. Hey, you know what? Maybe this would have been a great time to check in with your friend Cordelia and make sure she's not doing anything crazy, like trying to kill herself or somebody else. Like, or, like any type of harm to anything. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> this is one of those times where like, oh yeah, if you're noticing your friend is all like mopey and crazy, um, just let them know that you're there for them. Like, come on guys. Um, so she may have been thinking about suicide. Uh, there's no way to know for sure. Um, but what happened next was even more irrational. So on July 31st, 1898, Cordelia bought a box of chocolates from Market Street Candy Store in San Francisco from a clerk named Emma Herbert. She asked her to pack the candy in a plain box with enough room for a small gift. Next, she went to a store called the City of Paris, which was like a novelty shop, um, and bought a handkerchief. The package was put together neatly, but with enough anonymity to make sure it couldn't be traced back to the candy shop. She, so like there was no like seal like from this candy shop, you know, like. Yeah, there was no like, like logo or like. Yeah, no logos or emblems or anything like that on there. And I'm sure there wasn't a serial number. Right, yes. <laughs> no, not at this time. Um, so she uh, she laced the chocolates with the arsenic she had purchased and then packed it all up with a nice little note that said, with love to yourself and baby, signed Mrs. C. I don't know, yeah. I guess everybody just knew a Mrs. C back then. Like, yeah. it seemed weird to, to just, like, why wouldn't you just write your name so you... I don't know. Maybe that was just a thing that people did. Yeah, maybe it was like more proper to put like your surname followed by your initial. And there's so many last names to start with C. So it might be pretty yeah, easy to be like, oh, I know Mrs. Crawford. She must have sent this. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, this was a way of seeming like it was a normal gift from a family friend out in San Francisco because she knew if she sent it through the mail, it would be postmark from San Francisco, but they had recently lived there. So it would make sense that maybe someone was just being like, hey, thinking of you. Yeah. So the, the package was sent out and postmarked from Ferry Station Post Office in San Francisco. Five days later, on August 9th, 1898, the package arrived in Dover. And also, like, can you imagine, four days to get a package from San Francisco to Dover, Delaware. That is across the country. I have to wait, like, two weeks for a package sometimes in this day and age. Like, I know. How do they have a better postal system in 1898? Right. They it's can like get a 
they had less resources and have airplanes they have limited trains right limited highways less people to work yeah but yet somehow it was quicker and more efficient i'm i'm gonna blame amazon because there's maybe it's just because there's so many more packages i just think there's so many more people (laughs) that's that's true but also like people aren't sending like everyday letters and postcards being like hey would you like to come out to see me on this date and then they'd send it and then they would send a letter back being like yes I would like to come see you on this date and be like I'll be there sure yeah that used to take like days to just have a conversation through the mail Mm -hmm. there's my rant about (laughs) shipping times So anyway, the package arrived as a nice surprise. There was nothing suspicious about it. And when she opened the chocolates, Mary shared them with her sister, Ida Dean, and Ida's two children. Oh, no. Right away, everyone who ate the chocolates became violently ill. They had sharp stomach pains and spells of intense vomiting. By the next morning, Mary was dead and the day after, her sister Ida was as well. And the children? Luckily, the children did not eat as many as the adults, and they survived. That's amazing, because even if they didn't eat as many, their bodies are smaller, which means it will right? take less. Mm-hmm. That's, I was kind of thinking that, too. But also, like young, when you're young, I feel like you're a little more resilient, too. That's true. But you also have less, well, maybe not, depending on the person, But you have less like impulse control when you're young too. It's like you just want to keep eating those chocolates. Right. I guess maybe, maybe the, um, maybe the moms were strict and be like, okay, you can each have one. The adults are going to enjoy the rest. It's like any parent on the day after Halloween. Like here's your one piece of Halloween candy. Don't mind me while I take this handful. Like, Um, So right away, Mary's father launched an investigation because he noticed the handwriting on the note inside matched the taunting letters that Mary had received previously. Ooh, what a like, what a great like eye to catch that. Yeah. And when I looked at them too, I was like, okay, I don't know how you put two and two together, but uh, I'm glad that you did. Yeah. Um, anyway, you can bet that daddy's going to be real mad at whoever took his two beautiful daughters from him because yeah, that's just not one child, but both. Yeah. To lose two daughters within a day of each other. He must have been just absolutely devastated. And, and the fact that he is a super well-connected person um, meant that this was going to be a high profile case. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first person that authorities wanted to talk to was John. So John returned to Dover as soon as he found out that his wife was dead. When he saw the letters, he knew this had to be the work of Cordelia. He also recalled mentioning that his wife loved candies, uh, which I'm like, when would that come up in conversation? Like, when you're talking to your mistress, be like, you know what? My wife really likes chocolates. I just thought you should know. Maybe. Like, I could see it maybe where, like, you 
give someone something and you just happen to reference that someone else you know likes it so much that's yeah. why you thought they might like it too but to your point I don't get it that, seems like, weird <laughs> it does it seems very weird um and also like while they were talking to him he mentioned that he he had um at some point he had mentioned that his wife had a friend to name Mrs. Corbelly. Okay. Which might've accounted for the Mrs. C. So it's like, if she had somebody that, uh, that she could basically pose as the package coming from that, that gave her the idea. Sure. Um, Makes sense. So it was all starting to make sense right away. And detective, uh, B.J. McVeigh brought this evidence that he had to San Francisco along with a known sample of Cordelia's handwriting. Now, handwriting expert Theodore Kitka examined the letter and determined that Cordelia was indeed the person who wrote both the note found with the chocolates as well as the harassing letters. Police Chief Isaiah Lees found Cordelia in Stockton, California with her estranged husband and child and took her into custody. In the following days, more pieces of the investigation fell into place. They talked to the woman from the candy shop uh, who not only recognized Cordelia, but positively identified the box as being the exact one that she had given her for her order. Remember that she wanted it packed kind of in a plain box. Yeah. Uh, so she remembered that because it was out of the ordinary. Um, and then also that handkerchief had, a, it must've had a tag or something on it that said city of Paris. So when they went to the shopkeeper at the store city of Paris, he also positively ID'd Cordelia for her purchase. Huh. Uh, and the shopkeeper at the drugstore as well was able to identify Cordelia as purchasing the arsenic. Even the postal clerk remembered Cordelia and her package because the clerk's name was John Dunnigan, and he took note of the package because it was addressed to someone with a name that was so close to his own, which is right. Dunnigan. Yeah. So, I think that's that's just one of those freaking weird coincidences that it's it's like just couldn't have been more perfect in this case. Yeah, it's almost like fate had or like not maybe fate, but like all the stars aligned. Yeah. In this situation. So Cordelia thought that she was covering her tracks well, but she didn't she wasn't doing a good job at all. Now, this is also a historic case because this is the first time a crime was committed in two jurisdictions. So she like sent the package from California, but then the death actually happened in Delaware. Yeah. Um, so this actually went to the Supreme Court and it was eventually settled that John Carroll Cook would hear the case in San Francisco. The mountain of evidence was overwhelmingly against Cordelia. She even took the stand in her own defense, but all of her alibis could not be substantiated. So if she said that she was somewhere else, that like there was nobody else who could corroborate her story. 
The, jur the jury deliberated for four hours and found her guilty on December 30th, 1898 of two counts of first degree murder. On February 4th, 1899, she was given a life sentence. And that's very rare for a woman back in those days. I, I feel like it was, it was pretty uncommon. I feel like uh, the ladies as being thought of as the, the more genteel sex that they would, uh, I, I feel like a lot of times they got lighter punishments. Right. There was like an interesting shift of mentality where it went from, you know, she's a woman accused of crime in the year 1780, let's hang her, to she's a woman accused of a crime in 1899, let's put her in prison because she's too Gentile to have actually like, you know, face harsh consequences. I don't yeah. know. Well, and it's funny that you say that because uh, initially, rather than going to San Quentin State Penitentiary, um, she was held in the Branch County Jail. So talk about getting lighter uh, accommodations, shall we say? Uh-huh. So apparently things were pretty lax at the county jail because one day while Judge Cook was on his way to pay his respects to his late wife at the cemetery, he ran into Cordelia on a streetcar, totally unaccompanied by guards. What? So the judge who sentenced her found her just out on the street. Like, wait a second, you're supposed to be in prison right now. Like, Did she have the right to do that? Like, was well, she given permission to, like, go out and get a bite to eat? Like, She didn't have the right to do any of those things. Um, but what she was doing was that Cordelia was trading sexual favors with the guards so that she could go out and stretch her legs on the town. So here she was, you know, letting the guards uh, have a little treat. It's like so they can, can have, have their treat. fun so she can go and have her fun. Yeah, and it's just like, oh, just be back by bedtime, you know. <laughs> after that, she was sent to San Quentin after all where she no longer enjoyed such comforts. As Cordelia carried out her sentence in prison, the early 1900s brought more heartache to her. Her father died in 1900. Her husband, Welcome, died in 1904, and her son uh, passed away the following year in 1905. Mm. John Dunning's hard drinking lifestyle finally caught up to him and he passed away in 1907. So all of the people that she had once cared for were gone and she slipped into a depressive state. Her health slowly declined and on March 7th, 1910, Cordelia passed away at age 56. Hmm. The cause of death listed on her death certificate was softening of the brain due to melancholy. Isn't that such a weird, old-timey, like, death, this, like, declaration of death? It is. I mean, like, and in today's terminology, melancholy is depression. Yeah. Or and I guess you would say, like, softening of the brain would maybe be, like, I don't know, like, I don't know, like, I'm not a medical expert, but I imagine, like, you can just untreated mental illness can probably lead to death but 
I don't know how that would be or why they would call it softening of the brain. Yeah, I feel like that's just one of those old timey things that they like. We don't have another term for this. So this is what we're going to call it. Uh, it's funny when I think of like literal softening of the brain, I'm like, did she have mad cow disease? Oh my gosh. <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was probably just a lot of times when people are isolated like this and then they, uh, and, and it's like, well, all the people that you once cared for are gone and you get into a depressive state, mm-hmm. your, your overall health starts to fail. Yeah, you goal. stop taking care of yourself. Yeah. I mean, and it just- And you're, you're inactive. Uh, you're more likely to suffer from, you know, cardiovascular disease. I mean, kind of, if you think about Capano, that's kind of what happened to him too, is yeah. he just got kind of, you know, he got fat and he got, uh, and he wasn't moving around much and he it was all bad and lonely. Yeah. And... and it's just like, well, your body just eventually it's use it or lose it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mental, emotional, and physical health are all connected. Yep, exactly. So there is the end of part two. And I have one more part in store for you. Well, I'm glad you covered uh, Cordelia because I had heard of her murderous chocolates before in the past, but um, it was nice to talk about it and hash it out. Yeah. Oh, murder by mail. First time. Very ingenious, Mm -hmm. but not clever enough. Okay, Chris. So uh, what is uh, our dessert to this Delaware murderous buffet? (laughs) All right. So I've got one more for you. And uh, this one is the the case of Delaware's only known serial killer, known as the Route 40 killer and the Corridor killer. And his name was Stephen Brian Pennell. So Pennell was a cruel and sadistic killer who committed heinous murders against at least four women. So these are just the ones that we're, that we're confident about. Um, there is a possibility that there might even be more. So born November 22nd, 1957, Stephen Brian Pennell seemed to have a fairly conventional and stable childhood. When he grew up, he applied for various positions in the state police department, but was ultimately rejected for all of them because of his inability to pass the physical exam. And I found out later in one of the articles is probably because he was nearly 300 pounds. So oh, he was a okay. big dude. Was he tall as well? Um, I'm not sure. I imagine he must have been at least fairly tall. I didn't get a, a look at his other physical stats, but 300 pounds is a lot of weight to throw around. Yeah. So Pennell's settled for being an electrician, which, hey, I mean, that is a great gig. Uh, I mean, pays well. We need you. We need, we are, we're all still in desperate need of electricians, <laughs> I think. Um, so, hey, that's, you know what, there's nothing to sneeze about there. Uh, but he still wanted to be involved in law enforcement, though, and he had studied criminology and had completed some courses at the University of Delaware. He was married to a woman named Vera, and they settled in Newcastle, Delaware. Married life for Vera could not have been easy, though, as Stephen was domineering and controlling throughout their relationship. 
Obviously, he had very little regard for his wife because he began to visit sex workers in search of women that he could push to the boundaries with. Uh, he wanted to torture and rape. In late November of 1987, he would find his first victim. 23-year-old Shirley Ellis had been visiting a friend afflicted with AIDS in the Wilmington Hospital on November 29th, 1987. She was studying to be a nurse and wanted to bring her sick friend a home-cooked Thanksgiving meal, hmm. which is about the sweetest thing ever, especially considering the times and the stigma around AIDS. Like, yeah. Talk about like a like a kind heart. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Shirley had had a turbulent past that had included some sex work, um, but she usually did it out of necessity to make ends meet. But by this point in her life, she had really turned a corner and decided that all that was behind her and she wanted to focus on doing good and giving her life purpose. When she was done visiting her friend at the hospital, she planned to hitchhike back home. So she went out on Route 40 to catch a ride. She never made it home that night. Shirley was later found along the side of the road, strangled, beaten, and most horrifyingly mutilated on her chest. Investigators found duct tape in her hair, but that was about the only clue they had to go on. After months of dead ends, Shirley soon became a cold case, but another similar murder would soon reignite the fire under this investigation. On June 29th, 1988, 31-year-old Catherine DeMauro, who had also had a history of doing sex work, was found dead with all of the same marks and injuries that Shirley had. She had been walking along I-40 the evening before and late at night had been taken and murdered in the same manner as Shirley Ellis. This time though, there were blue and red fibers clinging to the body uh, that would prove valuable to the investigation. The women of Delaware were shocked and frightened at the thought of a serial murder stalking their state. After all, it is not something that had ever knowingly happened before. Police detectives felt they had substantial evidence that a serial killer was committing these crimes and detectives Joe Swiskey and Jim Hedrick went to the FBI at Quantico to seek help in the case. Luckily, they the, the FBI believed their case and enlisted the help of John Douglas, who is known for his book, Mindhunter. Which, uh, which side so. note, Mine Hunter is a fabulous book, and it's also a great uh, show on Netflix, which sadly was not renewed, but there are two wonderful seasons available on Netflix. Right. I feel like they just, you know, people complain about items being continued at Trader, discontinued at Trader Joe's. Netflix does the same thing. They truly do. Yeah, we're like, oh, let's, we're really excited about this series and it's canceled. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, in his book, he kind of goes into the minds of captured killers to try and unlock uh, kind of like the secrets of uh, 
what makes a killer and yeah. um, to help use that information to catch active killers that are on the loose right now. So with the help of the FBI, they were able to put together a profile of the killer. This is what they came up with. So they figured the killer was aged about 25 to 35, probably lived within five miles of where the bodies were being dumped. Um, he would be abusive toward any woman he was in a relationship with. Uh, he would drive a van or a truck and his use of tools suggested that he was in a building trade. So like a lot of this seems to be checking a lot of the boxes. Yeah, I always find amazing when uh, like profilers come up with a, the profile of a yeah. uh, potential suspect and they're just so spot on, it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, so most disturbingly though, that they, they basically predicted that he was escalating in his propensity for torture. So they saw what was being done to these women and was like, this is just the beginning. Like he is getting more skilled at the torture that he's administering mm -hmm. and it's only gonna get worse. So if they didn't stop this guy, not only would there be more bodies, but more twisted suffering at his hands. The investigation got a lot of press and suddenly the killer was changing his methods in order to evade detection by authorities. He started hunting along Route 13 and got a new van. On August 22nd, 1988, a sex worker named Margaret Lynn Finner disappeared off Route 13. She was discovered three months later by a hunter near the Chesapeake, Delaware Canal. Her body had deteriorated badly, but signs of, this, of the same torture were found on her body. In September, two more women disappeared. Michelle Gordon disappeared from Route 40 and was later found murdered near the same area where Margaret Finner's body had been found. Then there was Kathleen Meyer, who also disappeared from Route 40, but her body was never found. Mm. Police were desperate to catch this killer and resorted to desperate measures. A female police officer agreed to go undercover in an attempt to catch this scumbag. What they did was that they tried to find somebody in the police force that matched kind of the type of woman that he was going after. So sure. she had to kind of match the look and she had to be specially trained um, so this was, and, and there were multiple people who were trained for this that eventually did not go through with it. Right. I mean, it's very risky. It's super risky. So um, the job of bait for a serial killer fell to rookie state police officer Renee C. Lano. Understandably, she had some re reservations about the task but ultimately she put duty and safety of others above her own comfort. And it was just what they needed to blow the case wide open. After being trained on the right lingo to use and how to dress the part, Renee was armed with a gun and a pager with a hidden microphone so that detectives could monitor all conversations she had with the people who stopped. On September 14th, 1988, 
Renee finally got the interest that uh, detectives were hoping for. A man in a blue van beckoned her over. She made sure her communication device was working properly and then approached the van. So apparently she was just like, she was super nervous and she was like, if you can hear me, honk your horn. So they must have been somewhere off in the distance. Yeah. And so they honked once to signal to her that they could hear her. So she's like, okay, like they can hear everything that's going on. So if shit goes down, they can come in and save me. Yeah, she put her blind trust that, you know, at the end of the day, she was going to go home. Yes. She said that when she came face to face with this guy, it gave her chills as it looked like he was looking through her. Ugh. It's that just ugh, gives me the willies just thinking about that. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, it's scary enough approaching a van that and, and like this van like drove by a couple times just to kind of like check it out. Probably didn't see like, oh, is this someone, you know, looking for work or are they just some random person that's on the side of the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but yeah, uh, uh, I can't imagine the courage it had to have taken to approach this man. She chatted him up. She talked about his van. And when he turned the light on inside, she saw blue carpet, which set off alarm bells in her mind because blue carpet fibers had been tied to some of the other cases. If she was going to come through with this, uh, she was going to have to get a sample to compare with the evidence. Mm-hmm. So she feigned a little bit of interest and leaned into the van and managed to get a sample of the carpet. She then pretended to be sick to make her escape. So she was kind of like acting like she was a little high, maybe and be like, oh, look at this plush carpet. And then, and then, uh, and then like, be like, okay, well now I have to make my getaway some way and just be like, I don't, I don't feel good. Uh, I, I gotta go, which is amazing because it worked. Which is awesome. I mean, but it kind of makes sense because they say that like, if you're ever being attacked, you know, like in a sexual way, the best thing to do is like either try to make yourself throw up or like go to the bathroom in your pants. So like, if he is someone who's going to want to like sexually abuse her, if she acts like she's gonna like, like vomit all over the place, I doubt he's going to keep going down that path. Yeah. No, that is, uh, I have heard that as a recommendation. Maybe that might save somebody's life someday. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, uh, while Renee was keeping this guy talking, the uh, detectives Swiskey and, Hend- Hed- Swiskey and Hedrick uh, ran the van's plates and they finally had a name for their suspect. And that was Stephen Brian Pennell. He was placed under surveillance until the carpet sample could be analyzed to see if he was indeed their man. So it's like, okay, this guy's checking a lot of the boxes. Like we think that this might be our guy, but we we can't just go on a hunch. We have to have some sort of physical evidence to bring this guy in. So, um, so they keep an eye on him uh, just in case he 
pulls any other kind of crap. So while he was under surveillance in late September, Pennell's van was seen committing a traffic violation. So he was pulled over and the van was searched. Hmm. This is like one of the few times where like a routine traffic stop, like actually uh, helps um, kind of like pull more of an investigation together. Yeah. A blood stain was found in the back of the van and a warrant was obtained to search his home and vehicle more thoroughly. The search turned up a treasure trove of evidence, including a knife, two rolls of duct tape, multiple pairs of pliers that matched up to marks left on the victim's bodies and handcuffs. Furthermore, the test on the carpet fibers showed DNA from the victims, which interestingly enough, um, this was what the, the first time that a case could go to trial in the US using DNA evidence as a major sticking point in the prosecution. I feel like we had wondered that uh, in other cases. We're in like- Our very first episode, uh, we it was just before DNA had like come about. It was around this, it was 87. Oh yeah, so um, this, this uh, makes sense. So this was a time when it was it was finally coming into its own and being accepted as a viable piece of evidence. Right. Um, which is crazy because it's like all of this um, is the start of, you know, clearing backlogs of like rape kits and stuff like that because now we can actually find out who is responsible using science and real hard evidence that is it's impossible like you can't fake uh you know a blood stain like right so pennell was arrested for first degree murder on november 29th 1988 one year after the first body had been found and right after his 31st birthday too so happy birthday you monster i hope you like your present yes <laughs> a long stint in prison uh-huh uh when pennell went to trial he was accused of luring women to a torturous demise. Jurors were horrified and haunted by crime scene photographs, but Pennell was not moved at all. He didn't apologize or show remorse for what he had done and honestly never admitted his guilt ever, even though the, the, there was so much evidence in this case. So after, two uh, after a two month trial, and an eight-day deliberation, he was found guilty for the murders of Shirley Ellis and Catherine DeMorio, and pled no contest to the murders of Margaret Finner and Michelle Gordon. Hmm. So, um, and also, just because I, I didn't necessarily know what no contest meant, so that means that the defendant neither admits to a charge or disputes it. So it usually has the same immediate effect as a guilty plea. Um, and usually this is used in plea bargains. So yeah. it's kind of like a technical thing. Right. I've heard of these before. It's where the person on trial, they don't want to say that they're innocent because then if they go in, they could get like even more severe yeah, it's seen if it comes back that they're guilty, but they don't want to say they're guilty either because then that's automatically like life in prison sentence. Yeah, they're like, I'm going to say stuff. that I 
I'll accept the charges, but I'm not going to say that I did it. Right. Type of thing. So he was, uh, and then he was actually never charged with the death of Kathleen Meyer because her body was not found. So they didn't have yeah. the, the evidence that they could physically tie to this, this person. So on October 31st, 1991, Stephen Brian Pennell was handed a death sentence despite claiming his innocence. He even requested the death penalty in order to spare his family further torment. A courtesy that he did not extend to the family of Kathleen Meyer though. He was asked numerous times where her body was and he never revealed the location. On March 15, 1992, Pennell became the first person to be executed in the state of Delaware in nearly 50 years. And that's really quick from the time that he was sentenced. Yeah, usually those, uh, I think maybe it's because he requested the death penalty and it sounds like he was, it wasn't gonna be like endless appeals to like buy more time. Um, that's probably why it was so quick. Maybe. And, which is weird. Cause it's kind of like, you're basically allowing him an assisted suicide and I don't know. It seems almost like you should do the opposite of whatever a killer asks for. Be like, oh, you want a swift end to this? Be like, no, you're going to sit in a cell for the rest of eternity. I agree. You know, but also I can see that there is a little bit of closure in knowing that he is executed. Yeah. Uh, which goes along with this next part because uh, Renee. Lano, who was the officer that went undercover as a sex worker to help put this guy away, um, and Detective Jim Hedrick were there at the execution to see that justice carried out to the end. Uh, and Renee actually had nightmares of Pennell getting out of prison and going after her. Wow. Um, and that, that, um, seeing him like officially put to death, like before her eyes uh, by lethal injection would end that nightmare for her mm. uh, so that she could finally rest easy knowing that the monster responsible for all these crimes was finally really gone. Yeah. And thus, uh, you know, that day he was put to death by lethal injection, ending a frightening chapter in the state's history. So those are my highlights of Delaware's most notorious. Uh, I'd like to thank the following sources for being very vital. Uh, we've got Delaware Public Media, DelawareOnline.com, DelawareHistory.org, Delaware.gov, The Baltimore Sun, a podcast called True Crime Brewery, Out to Sea, The Life and Death of Anne-Marie Fahey, um, numerous uh, articles from medium.com and of course, good old Murderpedia. So there we go. Delaware, you are incredibly fascinating. You are, you are so small, but so much, uh, so much dark and deviousness inside such a tiny little three county area. Right? Uh, they've had, uh, they've had a leg up. They've uh, had a lot more time. Yes, uh, they have. And, uh, but yeah, that uh, that was extremely 
interesting to dive into a state that I have never been to before and it makes me really want to check it out. But yeah, thank you so much to our Delaware listener and hopefully multiple listeners now. Exactly. Um, And yeah, I'll be posting on our social medias, both Instagram and Facebook, Dark and Devious Podcast. Um, This week's post, I feel it's going to be a part one and a part two because I feel like the four women that were taken uh, by the Route 44 killer uh, deserve their their own spot. And I don't want them to get lost in the jumble of the other photos from okay. uh, the, the other two stories that yeah. you brought to us today. So that look out for good. those, everyone, yeah. on our social medias. And yeah, that was what a ride through Delaware. Yeah, yes. Hopefully uh, I'll get a chance to go check it out sometime. <laughs> Well, if you do, make sure you don't um, sample any mysterious chocolates. Yes, yes. I will make sure that the the chocolates have been handled by professionals and no one else. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, great job uh, telling yeah. those tales, Chris. Uh, I really enjoyed listening to them. I hope our listeners enjoyed as well. And until next time. Bye. bye.